Like, our system is so broken and messed up, and I want to fix it because people don't deserve to live like this. They deserve to just be able to make money and keep it without losing value. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group, who provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a bank, a reliable one that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB. And you know what? I could not be happier. It is so nice to finally be dealing with a bank which understands my business and understands Bitcoin and isn't putting hurdles in my way. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. And they also have this amazing fiat network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this. If you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out, then please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we've got Ledger the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. It's over four years now, and I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up is BlockFi. Now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join BlockFi. They've launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards and every purchase. But if you're interested in finding out more and you do want to take out that bonus, you want to get that $250 in Bitcoin, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations. And this is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a customer for over a year. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. Happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Morning, Natalie. Good morning. It's good to see you here. It's good to see you. I know. You've traveled far. Into your hometown. I know. This is where I went to college. Isn't it? Isn't it pretty? It's so nice. I know. Could you imagine living somewhere like this? It's it's amazing. It's amazing. I know. I should come up here more. I'm not that far away. 
How long, so. how long did it take you to get here? Like 25 minutes. Okay. Right. Uh, are you ready for us to turn the tables on you? Yes, I am. Natalie's coin story. <laughs> Perfect. Now that I named it that, this was supposed to be a very temporary project. I thought it was going to be one season tops. I would have named it something much better than that. Yeah, n- naming's an issue. It's something me and Danny discuss on a weekly basis because we wish we hadn't called it what Bitcoin did. Really? Yeah. Why? Because sometimes you want to do other things, you know, asymmetric topics. Yeah. Or there's guests you want to get on and they're like, oh, I don't want to do this Bitcoin shit. Yep. So... I know. We debate it regularly. Well, everyone's changing their names, so I feel like I might eventually do that as well because that's the, the thing to do, right? Meta, Block, everybody's just kind of adjusting their uh, their name, so maybe I'll do that eventually too. The Natalie Bruno podcast. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Natalie, you've been crushing it. Thank you. You have really, really been crushing it. Uh, we were talking about you the other night. We went out to eat with VJ Boy Party. I love him. Well, he loves you and I love you and everyone loves you. But we were talking about you. what you've been doing this year, not only with the podcast, but your TV appearances. You've oh. been absolutely killing it. You've been relentless. You don't let up with the hosts. You don't let them interrupt you. You just came on. I've seen two specifically. We've come on like a fucking steam train. And... Uh, some of the best clips I've, I've seen of people talking about Bitcoin. That means so much to me. You have no idea. I really, really appreciate it. I finally feel like I'm kind of in my zone and feel like I am sort of, I found my calling, if you will. Like I'm really passionate about Bitcoin and I want to spread the message and use my skills that I acquired over the last 10 years to do that. So I, I really appreciate it. Well, look, Bitcoin's going full mainstream now it's been mainstream for a while everyone's heard of it but it's now in popular culture it's uh regularly discussed and across the networks uh, a lot of podcasts are doing well a lot of people are getting known but the discuss i'm gonna embarrass you but the discussion that we have is me danny jeremy and vj we, we all kind of agreed we think you're the best we've got to be out there in the mainstream talking about bitcoin we oh, think wow. you're the best well, I don't know if I deserve that, but thank you. Well, of course you deserve it. it. You did thank it. Thank you. Uh, and we'd like to see more of you doing that. I want to get on more shows. It's funny. People ask me, like, why haven't you been on CNBC yet? Why not CNN? And, uh, you know, it's hard because um, for some reason, Fox Business um, and some of the other outlets have been more, um, you know, they've been more prone to want to discuss Bitcoin as opposed to some of the other outlets. And I am definitely, you know, I'm not a big CEO that purchased Bitcoin and put it on my balance sheet. So, you know, I would love to get it, get out there more if I can. And I, hopefully that'll happen. So, But you're, you're an insider in that world. You know how it works. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But I still think that, you know, Bitcoin, there's just so much, um, there's so much that people just don't understand, which has been an advantage to me, right? Because if mainstream media got it, I, I probably wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing right now and making a career of it. So I feel like I'm kind of running full speed because I got I got a head start, sort of understanding and learning all of this myself. But once mainstream media pours in, I mean, I don't know what'll happen. <laughs> they won't really need me anymore. I don't agree. <laughs> I think you got this. And I think more people should be listening to your podcast. And Thank if you. we can do anything to help you, we will. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, time to turn the tables on you. Okay. Actually, I've, I've said this. I, I, do you have a consistent first question? Yeah, I started at the very beginning. Like, where are you from? Like, all the way back. Where were you born? Were you born and raised? What was your childhood like? So. I, I remember you asking me about that. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know if you did that for everyone, but every, yeah. every guest. 
Natalie, where are you from? <laughs> Tell everybody. Uh, you know, I, I am from a town called Wuch, Poland. And uh, I was there until I was five. So my parents grew up there. My parents have all these stories about what it was like when it was communist. So um, they really always dreamt of coming to the United States. My mom just had this vision of the American dream and coming to the US. She watched a lot of American films, which I think is why I was naturally predisposed to loving film and TV and just media in general because she always had things on and she loved the old classic Hollywood movies and how they depicted American life. And so her dream was to come to the US and uh, she tried every single year for the lottery. It's really, really hard to come. I mean, it's- it's The lottery? Yeah, like a visa lottery. Tell me about that. Yeah, so you have to basically apply and there's a small amount of people, small number that actually get to come over and, and apply for a visa and apply for citizenship ultimately. And uh, she tried every single year and it took 20 years before my family could actually come. So it was interesting because my mom was 38 at the time, my dad was 41, I was five. And, uh, and my dad was kind of like, you know, it's, why, why are we going at this point? You know, we've got our lives figured out. It's maybe not be the best situation. We don't have a huge place or a ton of money, but like, are we going to really start over at this point in our lives? We don't know the language. We don't know anybody. And my mom in this blazing glory, she's like, well, I'm going. So I'm, I'm taking the kids. You could come or you could not come, but we're doing this. It's a better life is, uh, is going to be in the U S for them. So they could go to school there and there's more sense of upward mobility. And so my mom was the one that like thrust the family forward and, and had us all come. So, so yeah, I was five years old when we moved to, to the suburbs of Chicago. How many years did you say it took? 20. Yeah. 20. Yeah. Nearly 21. Yeah. Nearly 21. And that was, uh, she, her, her number came up in the lottery or another way? Uh, you know, she, so my, br uh, my uncle, her brother married someone who was American and then she, he was able to apply for our family. So it ended up not happening through the lottery, but it still took 20 years to be wow. able to come. Yeah. And do you remember, do you remember being in Poland as a five-year-old? I, I remember little things. I remember, I have like little, um, images in my, in my head of my childhood there, our neighborhood. Um, and I've gone back. So I think that helped fill in some of the some of the blank spaces, but um, you know, I, my family traveled a lot. They would do importing and exporting of, of merchandise and sell it in a little shop in Poland. And so um, we would travel to countries like Bulgaria and at the time Czechoslovakia and different countries to purchase goods that we were gonna sell in Poland. And it was funny because at the time, my mom would always say like the best quality things and the things that were the most coveted and the things people wanted to buy were from America. They were made in America. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. And then we came and started over. Wow. Do you remember the move? I don't. I think I remember the first plane ride um, just because it was my first, it was the first time I took a flight. Uh, so I vaguely remember being on the flight over, but then um, I just remember going to school for the first time, like starting, starting over as a kid that doesn't know the language, feeling so alien from everybody else. Um, and I wrote an article about this in Bitcoin Magazine. Like, that's what's vivid to me is this feeling that you don't belong and that you're different. VJ and I actually talked about this too because he had that feeling when, when he immigrated. It's like this feeling that you know you're different. Everyone's kind of like thinks you're weird and you know doesn't understand the food you're bringing to lunch, thinks your language and your accent is weird. And so that's ultimately why I changed my name. Like, my birth name is Natalia. But everyone was like, well, that's not the American name. The American name's Natalie. So I was like, okay, like, call me Natalie. <laughs> it's 
fine. You didn't officially change it. I officially you changed officially it. Changed it. Yeah. Did your mum still call you Natalia? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, so those early days in school, pretty tough, or did you settle in within a year, two years? Um, so I got really lucky, and my mom likes to tell this story because it's funny how siblings can be so different. I have an older brother. He's always been very shy. I was always super outgoing and very fearless. So I didn't care that I didn't have like the the language skills yet. I would just talk and try to meet friends and like all of that. I was I was a big people pleaser because I wanted to fit in. And um, yeah, I just, I, I did really well in school. Like I picked up the language quickly and then I just started to do really well in classes and uh, it, it came easily for me, which I feel grateful for. And did you pick up the language because you're so young and yeah. adaptable. Do you pick it up quicker than your parents? Oh, absolutely. So to this day, it's funny because how much you talk, for sure, how much you practice affects your accent because my dad is the most shy. He practices the least. He has a very thick accent. So I always, I always loved Arnold Schwarzenegger growing up because here the accent reminds me of my dad. <laughs> Um, my mom um, still has a very thick accent, but it's, it's more mild. And then my brother has a little accent because he was 16 when we came. And then... I don't know. I've had a Chicago accent. Now people say I have a California accent, but it, clearly I don't have a Polish one. Do you speak Polish? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to my grandma. To your grandma, but your parents, you all speak English together. I speak English to my parents, but they speak Polish to me. So that weird thing. It's like thing. a hodgepodge of, yeah. And, and is it that weird thing sometimes you see where like some sentences are half one language and half another? Yeah, yeah. That's always sure. fucking weird. I never understand how that happens or how people do it. Yeah, when you grow up in a bilingual household, it's really interesting because you start to not even think about what language is being spoken. Um, so, I mean, people will speak, someone will say something in Polish and then someone will respond in English and vice versa. So. And do your parents talk a lot about what it was like living under communism in Poland? Yeah, yeah, my mom especially. I mean, she's always been a really big storyteller, which I'm really grateful for. Um, you know, my grandparents lived through the, the war and um, things were just really hard. I mean, basic necessities were hard to come by. You had to wait in line for things. Even my mom describes like when, when I was little, and this is certainly something I don't remember, but just being in line and things running out and like you couldn't get basic things. And the idea that you could move upward in society and change your, your status, that just didn't exist. It just didn't exist. And in a way, it's funny because she looks back and she's like, I mean, in a, you know, it's good that we didn't have the mass inequality because like here we have the flip and it's like people are ridiculously wealthy and then we have homeless tents. Um, but at the same time, it's like you, you could work as hard as you want and you could, you know, have all of the sort of, you know, motivation and intention to, to, to do, to better your life. And it's just not possible. There's no opportunity. And do you think that has influenced you with regards to Bitcoin, knowing about this? Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I feel most of all, like I just, I believe that the American dream shouldn't be so hard to achieve. I feel like the country was, was founded on such such amazing principles of, you know, just self-determination and freedom. And we've lost that along the way. And I, I've always been the, a, a believer that if you're a good person and you work hard, you should be able to achieve the things that you want. And it's not going to be all equal, right? We're not all equal and we don't all have the same motivations and desires, but like, I think you should have a shot you know, and I saw what happened with my parents is that every year it felt like it got harder and harder. They worked, they did all the right things, they paid their taxes, they just wanted to take care of their family. And the goalposts kept moving of like how much you needed to make and what you could actually do and school getting more expensive. So Here or in Poland? Here. In here. Okay, here. well, we'll come, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, do you talk to your mom about Bitcoin? 
Yeah, I orange pilled my family. Hell yeah. 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 And did it make more sense to your mom as, again, as somebody who lived under a communist regime? Yeah, the only thing that she has trouble with is the digital aspect. Um, so she was more of like a gold bug, if anything. Uh, she, she loves the idea of something that can't be confiscated and that's not controlled and not manipulated by any central authority. That is very central to her. So those those principles um, run very deeply in her. But as far as something being completely digital, that's just what scares her. And she has worked, she actually worked in the banking system when, when we came here. So she knows that like, you know, accounts can be hacked and people's money can be drained from something that doesn't really exist other than on a, on a computer screen. And so that's what scares her. But, you know, I, I think that's a hurdle for her generation. It's just the idea that something doesn't have to be physical in order to have value and in order to you know, be kept safe by us. So yeah. But she's orange pilled. She's orange pilled. And you know what helps the most? Go on, tell me. Safedine Amus's Bitcoin standard in Polish. I sent wow. that to her. Yeah. Do we know if VJ's books in Polish yet? Uh I don't know. But if it is, I'll send it to her. Because he's working on translations. Yeah. As uh, at the moment. Uh I think his book is also fantastic. Amazing. And uh we yesterday we had somebody in um called Eric Yates. Uh, yeah. Who, who, have you, do you know him? I, I've seen his book. I haven't read it yet. I need to because I've heard great things. Um, it was I saw the book in Kansas City when I hosted the Bitcoin Day there. Right. Okay. Well, the, it was a phenomenal interview. So I'd recommend oh. him for your podcast. He's a really interesting character. And oh, he, great. His story about getting into Bitcoin is super fascinating because he very early on in his career realized, you know, what the fuck am I doing? And decided to take the leap. Whereas yeah. a lot of people have done it later in life. Yep. What about your dad? Is he orange pilled? Well, he just purchased his first amount of Bitcoin over Christmas. So yes. he came later, but yes. But he did it. <laughs> yes. He did it. Yeah. You're the uh, crazy Bitcoiner in the family then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are, I think they're a little shocked about my turn in my career because it was so unexpected into something that I didn't, I don't have formal training in, right? Like none of us have a degree in Bitcoin and I didn't study economics. So, um, I'm literally like just channeling my journalism and communication experience into this specific area. So it came out of the blue for them for sure. Well, we should talk about that. Cause I remember when we spoke, yeah. when you were thinking of qu mm -hmm. quitting Mm -hmm. the, the journalism world and just like taking this dive into Bitcoin, mm -hmm. which was a very brave move at the time. But just let's go back a step because yeah. um, I want to know about why you got into journalism first. Because sure. I, I think certain types of journalists are predisposed to understanding or getting Bitcoin straight away. I think mm -hmm. there's two types. There's two types of journalists. They're like, they get it mm -hmm. or they want to fight it. Yeah, There's no middle ground. And the ones who want to fight it are usually shitty journalists who don't do the proper research. Sure. And the ones who get it, they suddenly just want to work on it. Mm -hmm. So uh, from school, was it always a case you knew you wanted to be a journalist? Yeah, pretty much. I always wanted to work in TV or film. And I grew up sort of having a ton of media on at home because it helped augment my parents' English skills. So we would have, whether it was TV shows that were more on the scripted fictional side or just news, we were a family that watched a ton of news, like Diane Sawyer, Barbara Walters interviews, Oprah, all of it. It's on all the time. So I, I, I remember being young and just thinking, what an incredible job, what a noble profession. You get to interview, you know, leaders and, and big celebrities celebrities and you know like I'm this little little girl in the suburbs of Chicago who came from a foreign country it just seemed like this amazing job and so I 
I, I knew that I wanted to do that. And it's funny because I, I thought that I had to go to LA for that. I had like, this is where all of that was. It was like the heart of media and the capital of not just Hollywood, but just, I don't know, TV, film in general, which it isn't like news is more New York city, but I thought I have to go to school in LA. And so I was always really, really determined. And I think knowing that my parents came from a place where they started over and we didn't have a lot. Like I remember moving into our first apartment and my parents were super selfless. They gave us the, like each a bedroom, my brother and me, cause we couldn't share, right? We have a big age difference. And they slept on this, on a pullout sofa in the living room. Cause we wow. didn't, we couldn't afford anything else. We all shared one small bathroom. And it's like, I saw their sacrifice and I saw how hard they worked every single day. My dad would get up at three o'clock in the morning to have to warm up the car because it was so snowy and frozen outside in Chicago to go to work super early. And he would come back late at night. And like, they were just, it was like a furnace burning, just like constantly working to try to take care of the family. And I always said to myself when I was young, like I have to achieve something because I want to take care of my family. And I thought that rich people, like I thought you were rich if you had a garage. Like I was like, oh my God, like if you have a garage, you've made it. <laughs> you don't have to scrape your car, you know, of ice. And uh, so yeah, I had, was, I had this burning fire when I was young. I was like, I have, if there's, if one in a million gets to be the Barbara Walters or whatever, then like, why can't I be that one if I just work hard and I'm good to people? So my mom always encouraged that as well. She to told me to dream big. And so I came out to LA and I decided to major in journalism. And, uh, and so, yeah, I set off, I mean, pretty much what I did for 10 years is what I learned how to do in college, which is funny because some people study something and then they, you know, go into a job where they do nothing related to what they studied in school. This guy. <laughs> no, I literally have been writing scripts and creating news packages and all that since I was 18 years old. So, so, so prior to going to college, you were practicing in front of the camera mm -hmm. as a mini news reporter. Yeah, like news reporter, host, um, red carpet person, uh, actress. So you all would of it. you would just turn up, or was all practice? Just, would you? you no, actually? no, no. This is like in high school and stuff. I mean, I did. I I was very active in things like play. Like I acted when I was young and did acting classes. But no, I didn't start all that until college. Was was YouTube a thing then? No, did not exist. See, that's a shame. Yeah. Because you would have had the platforms to just start distributing <laughs> at that age. You know what? I'm really grateful that I didn't have that okay. because I feel like the 90s are sort of this milk and honey time period for me where it was just pure, innocent childhood, you know, and teenagehood without the social media. Like, I'm personally grateful that I didn't worry about what my friends were posting. And for me, that probably would have been hard too because, again, like my family didn't have as much. My family moved into a suburb where people tended to be more well off because that's where the good school was. So we were like among the, the families who had the least and lived in like the tiniest place. And so I think seeing all that on social media would have probably been hard, you know, because comparison is sort of the death of joy, as I always say. So the nineties were awesome. The nineties were the best. The nineties were awesome. I, I love the nineties. I think it was the best music. I, yeah. know, I know everyone thinks out their generation it was the best music, sure. the best film, the best TV. And you're right. I mean, I remember I didn't get my first mobile phone until I was like 20. Mm -hmm. So during the 90s, there was no real, no. the internet was basic. Yeah, I had like a Oregon Trail. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I remember when AOL came out with the like dial up. With the little the CDs. That, yeah. You get the little yeah, CDs the CD on ROMs. everything. Yeah. yeah. Everyone had hundreds of those. I remember like my first chat room. I mean, it was basic. Dial I had up. a compact computer. 
Um, I did nothing on it. I just like, I had a real life with real friends in the, in the real world, not the metaphor. In the meat space. <laughs> Danny. Yes. Do you remember dial up internet? No. But I, I think my family had it, but I don't really remember using it's it. Amazing. Oh, sorry, it's not up on it. Um, yeah, I don't think I ever used it. My family had it, but I just remember broadband. Do you remember it? Yeah, AOL. The yeah. Screaming. So what used to happen? It, it, it was fifty-six k dial-up, right? Mm. So what used to do, Danny, is when you'd want to get on the internet. This is how budget it was. You would basically click connect. And then you'd hear this sound that goes, I did a worse job than you. It's bad. And then it would connect and you would load a web page and it would like slowly fill in. Mm -hmm. All the text would come in and each image would be slowly coming in. And it could take a minute for Mm -hmm. a web page to load. Ridiculous. I think I do remember that noise on the phone. Uh, it was, it's a really annoying noise. <laughs> and like you would go from page to page and you would spend five minutes reading like three pages, but it was still mm-hmm. amazing. It was like, wow, there's this content yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And the first emails, like it was incredible. Hotmail. Oh. My first, my first AOL username was Seychelles86. Seychelles86. <laughs> mine was Short Long John. <laughs> I don't know why. Short Long John. Uh, and then I had a Hotmail address. Because everyone got a hotmail oh, yeah. address. Do you I didn't have, have that. Did, yeah. you have a, did you have a MySpace account? Yeah, t- very temporarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. MySpace was pretty cool. I, I don't really remember it, but yeah. If you were really into music, it was cool because every, oh, yeah. every band had, had a page. It, yeah. I think one of the first pages I ever went to was like a Korn's MySpace page oh. to try and listen to a, to a song. But That's cool. Yeah, and then we got, what, 128? And then we got, what was that thing in between like broadband? Do you remember the... No, oh, what was it called? After, bro- after dial-up, you had... Oh, anyway, anyway. The 90s were the best. The best. The best. The best. Maybe I know. not the I clothes. I have lots of nostalgia for it. What? The clothes are fun. Actually, I still dress like them in the fucking 90s. I like, like the a, 90s. I feel like it's, the style's coming back. <laughs> I never changed. <laughs> okay, so, so, you, so you, you, went, you were creating stuff. Mm-hmm. You went to college. Mm-hmm. When did you get your first proper gig? Uh, so I also went to graduate school. I got my master's in journalism at Northwestern. And um, you have to remember that this is like, I graduated right into the recession and my family lost everything in that. So literally just as I saw sort of this mini American dream come true for my parents, where they were able to um, afford a down payment. And obviously this is the housing bubble. <laughs> um, we got 2008. A, yeah. So in 2005, we moved into a townhouse, which was like a big step up for us. Still not like a real house. Like I've always, I've always lived with like walls connected. Um, but we got a townhouse. It had three bedrooms. And um, I remember just being so happy. Like this was when I was in high school now. And I just remember feeling like, wow, like they worked really hard and we did it. And like, I have my own room and like my parents have their own room and this is awesome. And then I went off to college and bam, 2008, 2009, my mom took out a second mortgage on the house. Cause you know, again, this is a time where in, in fiat, it's like everyone's taking, encouraging you to take out more debt. Like, just go do it. And so my mom was like, oh, well, maybe I'll start my own business. And so um, she took out a mortgage and everything tanked and they went under completely. My my parents Um. went bankrupt and they had to start over. And so I graduated into that. My mom has like, she has a heart of gold. Like they both tried to insulate me from it and not tell me how bad it was. So it's funny because it's like my parents kind of 
lied to me essentially because I was away at school and they were like, no, 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 we're, it's all good. We're fine. We're, we're choosing to leave the house. Like we're, we're, we're just, we're going smaller because you know, you're not here anymore. All of it. You know, I found out later, no, they went bankrupt. Like they were, and they just didn't want to tell me because they thought that that might cause me to be stressed and worried for them because they're so selfless. I mean, they're, I literally, the, the, salt of the earth, best human beings ever. And, uh, and so I, again, it's like, it's like, why did this happen? Like these, my parents are such good people. They've played by all the rules and they, they pay their taxes. They work super hard. Why is it so hard for them to just have a house? Like why? And so I think that like sparked something in me where I just feel like there's injustice and inequality in the system, but I didn't know why. Right. Cause like I didn't, I didn't study Austrian economics at the time. I didn't understand what money printing is. We didn't invest in stocks. My parents were good savers, savers. So like their money was essentially melting away. And I didn't, I didn't understand any of that. And so it took this like sort of 10 year career, I think being in news and exposing myself to some of the biggest crises facing this society, interviewing people on a day-to-day basis, facing poverty, homelessness, you know, civil unrest, public corruption, for me to finally start to connect the dots. Because when I discovered Bitcoin and finally went down the rabbit hole, I was like, oh, this is the problem. Oh, this is the problem that's also impacted my hardworking, amazing, good family. And now I will do anything possible to help everyone I can first understand the problem and know that Bitcoin is the solution. And like, I, I feel really driven and called to do that. Wow. That's, uh, that's hard. I didn't, I didn't know that part about your parents. You've never told me that before. Um, yeah. obviously it's probably private. I don't know, but, um, they got fucked by a system. Uh, yeah. It was hard to talk about for a long time. I felt embarrassed. I mean, I went to Pepperdine up, up the street. I mean, half of my friends and students who go there, they come from very wealthy families. You don't want to be the poor kid. You don't want to be the one that has like the family that, you know, doesn't have money. It's embarrassing. And it's like, and that's so sad because I look back now and I'm so proud of my family. I can't believe I even thought that way. Yeah. But look, I I get that. Uh, I was very lucky in that I went to a really good school, the best Mm -hmm. school in town, but to go there, my dad had to work up. He just had to work his ass off. So basically Mm -hmm his basic salary would not cover the costs of putting us through school. So he used to do overtime. So he was a shift worker, an an aircraft engineer. Um, And the shift pattern was four days on, four days off. And so it would be four days, four days off, four nights, four days off. And so he'd either be working six in the morning till six Mm -hmm. in the evening or six in the evening till six in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I have all these vague memories of like, my mum would. My mum got up every single day for him. Would make his breakfast, prepare his lunch. He would go. Yeah. And I have this like fond memory of we would hear the door, then be my dad coming and we'd all run in and give him a big hug. Oh. I was like the highlight of the day, the day. But that wasn't his wages weren't enough to put put us through yeah. the school. So what would happen is every time overtime would come up, he would take it. So where it was four days on, four days off, he might go four, four, four and work all twelve in a row, or four, take a day off, yeah. work three overtime. Um, and he used to occasionally do the this thing called the ghost shift, which was basically a 24-hour shift. So he would go in and maybe get a little kip in there, but work 24 hours. He had to work, work, work. And within the school I was in, and, you know, I've not talked to my dad about this because he wouldn't understand it, but, like, I was the poor kid amongst the other yeah. kids. So I 
you know, yeah. the black and red mm-hmm. rugby jersey mm-hmm. was came down with my brother. By the time I got it, it was grey and pink because mm-hmm. it just all yeah. the washes and you would come in after Christmas and all the kids would be like, what'd you get for Christmas? I got Nintendo, I got this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't get those things. And mm-hmm. so I understand that. And I don't think it's anything to feel ashamed about. Yeah, no, and I don't anymore. It's just when you're younger, you know, you're just, you want to fit in. It's yeah, like course. that feeling you want to be like everybody else. And it when, drives you forward. Oh my gosh. Yeah, like I've always been the most motivated, ambitious person I think in my friend group because I was like nothing like okay if I maybe I ask and the answer is no but I have to ask like I will do whatever it takes I will take the risk and I will keep moving forward because you know I I I want it just as badly and I feel like if I'm a good person then I I deserve it so so talk about your journalism gig with what what was uh, like you said you were covering poverty Mm -hmm. homelessness were you, was it something you were specializing in or was that just like you did a range of things and sometimes yeah. you covered that? Yeah. So, you know, journalism is really interesting because it's changed so much. So I graduated into the recession and I also graduated into a massive technological digital shift where all of a sudden now YouTube is coming up, Instagram, Facebook, and now there's citizen journalists and people creating their own shows. And now we're suddenly competing for advertising dollars online and the whole business model for journalism shifted. So I chose an industry that was at, at one time pretty lucrative. Even if you were a local newscaster, let's say in Chicago or a small town, you made pretty good money actually. And you had a pretty solid career and you graduate or you, um, you retired and you might have a pension from the station. Then it flipped and it changed very, very quickly to all of a sudden you're shooting your own videos as a reporter. Um, you are posting things online. The salaries suddenly decreased. I mean, If I had known some of the things that would happen in that shift, I probably wouldn't have gone into the industry because you could you could make so much more money by specializing in something and then essentially creating your own online platform and becoming sort of expert or, you know, having an online business, which I guess I'm doing now. But but like I took a 10 year (laughs) journey detour to do that. Um, So, yeah, no, it was it was really hard. So I graduated. My first job in journalism was in a small town. Actually, it was behind the scenes at CNN. And then I got my first on-camera job um, in Palm Springs, California, which is about an hour and a half. I know it. Uh, yeah, east of here. And I was making $30,000 a year after you know graduating. I, I had debt for a little. I managed to pay that off. Um, but then I started on this track where basically if you want to be an on-camera reporter, anchor, host, all these, you know, the people that are on the Today Show or whatever, you start in a small market like that that has a small viewership. And then you move to maybe a middle-sized market, a big market, top 10, you know, the top 10 big cities, obviously, New York, LA, Chicago, and so on. And then you hopefully, some people want to go national. So that's sort of the the path, the trajectory. And each time you get a promotion after about two to three years of a job, you hopefully make more money in, the, in a bigger city and more money, more money. But you're on these like contracts, two to three years. And so if you're a reporter, you're, you start as a general assignment. You're covering everything. You'll cover like the cat up the tree, you know, the first day, and then the local city, city council campaign the next day, and then a big fire that breaks out the next day and then a murder the next day it's like one thing to the next you're sometimes flying by the seat of your pants doing multiple stories a day but you are literally just responding to the biggest story that's happening wherever you are so it was really interesting so I did that for you know I went from Palm Springs to Sacramento which was cool because it's a state capital so lots of issues going on in the state of California, obviously. And then I moved to um, actually network ABC News. I was based in the LA Bureau and I was a correspondent that traveled across the country for breaking news. And then I settled back in LA at a job where I was an investigative reporter here locally. And then I left. <laughs> and when you were uh, doing your reports, 
when you were out there on the in the field yeah. doing this were, were there certain things where you like felt a passion towards mm-hmm. Are you like okay i've got that assignment yes that's what i want i want to do that yeah so i became passionate about investigative okay. um because i've always i think been it's two things number one i'm just naturally curious and i think i'm a good like investigator for information like I like to I don't mind sifting through public documents and like looking for clues I think it's just like a natural detective quality (laughs) that I have but number two um I got tipped off by a source when I was in Palm Springs who basically said there's like um there's something really shady going on with the the mayor of Palm Springs and a, a local developer where basically there were bribes going on and this secret relationship where he was getting paid under the table and so I ended up unco- helping uncover like this massive scandal and the mayor ended up indicted on 33 counts of public corruption Pretty because sure. he yeah he essentially was getting bribed by a local developer and they were just like you know, basically handing each other money. And that was really fulfilling for me. And also it like, I think because of what my parents went through, I had always this feeling of like the system screws the little guy in favor of the the rich people and the politicians. And I want to get them. I want to expose them. I want to hold them accountable because I don't think that you should run for public office if you want to serve yourself. I think you should run for public office if you want to serve people and actually do something to help society and not become a millionaire and trade options on the side while everyone else is getting screwed. I think that's wrong. I think it's fundamentally wrong. And that definitely comes from my family background. So I felt called to just like hold their feet to the fire, which unfortunately my industry doesn't tend to do anymore. They tend to serve as a mouthpiece for the government now. And it Mm -hmm. frustrates me, which ultimately started to lead to my decision to leave because I don't want to be a part of that. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am now using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you know what? We're coming up to a year and I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I am only buying Bitcoin. I am a hodler. That's all I'm doing. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is Level, a company finally delivering on the promise of a Bitcoin bank. Yes, a bank on your phone where you can deposit, spend and hold Bitcoin. And you can also do this alongside a traditional dollar checking account. You can deposit your payroll into your account as a US user, and you can even spend your Bitcoin from your account via your MasterCard debit card. I have been testing it out. I've been playing with the app, and it is everything I've ever wanted from personal banking. And there's so many more updates coming. They've got some big updates coming in February, so keep an eye out for that. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to go and check it out, please head over to Level, which is LVL.co, or search for Level, which is LVL, in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are well into the football season, and you know what? Things are going all right. It's been a pretty good season so far for Liverpool. Tottenham struggling as ever. 
We always like it that way. Now, if you are interested in football, if you do want to make a bet, and if you want to use your Bitcoin, then sportsbet.io is the place to go. But they don't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up is Compass Mining. And Compass aren't just a sponsor. I'm a customer of theirs, and I am mining Bitcoin with them. Do you know what? I've been mining for over three months with them now. I've mined about 0.4 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. I'm going to try and do updates on this every month. But with the price of where Bitcoin is, I'm approaching having, I think, about a third of my mining equipment paid off. I love that I'm mining again because Compass has made it accessible to anyone as a Bitcoiner, to get out there and start mining and contribute to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and anyone can do it. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and Compass does everything else for you. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to start mining, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. As an independent, you can be that person again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was a big decision, though. Like I said, I remember you reached out to me. I'm trying to mm-hmm. remember exactly. And you're like, I'm launching a podcast. Will you come on it? I'm like, sure, let's do it. And then you were telling me you're thinking of quitting mm-hmm. your main job mm-hmm. to go and do this. And it was like, whoa, that's, well, that's a big deal. Yeah. But you you did it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, I, sometimes I look back and I'm like, I, I, if you would have told me this a year or two ago, I, I wouldn't believe you of what my life looks like now in this career that I'm creating for myself. I would not have believed you. I would not have believed you. What was the orange pilling um, moment? Do you remember? Yeah. So 2017, I was working in Sacramento, um, covering everything again. And I heard about Bitcoin. I had a boyfriend who lived in San Francisco and his friends worked in Silicon Valley. And one of them worked at Coinbase and they were, some of them were Bitcoin investors. One of them lost 10 Bitcoin in Mt. Gox or something. (laughs) Yeah. Not as, you know, not as much as it would be today, but, um, yeah. So, uh, so I started to hear about it. I decided to pitch a story about Bitcoin. I found a Bitcoin ATM in Sacramento and I was like, can I just do a story on what this is? My station was very, very wary, uh, cause they were worried that I was giving essentially investment advice and sending people down this path where they're going to set their money on fire. And I, that was, it was like a one and done. I did that story. Um, but I, it, at the time I didn't have the Bitcoin standard. I just thought this was sort of like a, a bet on new, on a new technology, but I was skeptical. And that's why I think I relate to so many people out there. And that's what I try, who I try to speak to in these media hits. It's like, I was really skeptical. I thought this, this would probably go to zero, you know, this is internet funny money. And I also, at the time, again, I didn't understand our, our money system. So I had to do that work. You have to do that work. Otherwise you really can't appreciate how Bitcoin solves all these problems and why it's such a powerful network. So um, never sold though. I like purchased my first amount of Bitcoin in 2017. And I had a mentor who I told, um, I told him about Bitcoin and he's someone who's just a really close mentor in my life for the last almost 10 years. And I go, you know, there's this thing called Bitcoin. And so he picked up the Bitcoin standard. He read it and he goes, you have to read this book. This will change your life. And so I read it, I read it twice. And that's, that's where like the veil was lifted off my eyes. And I was like, oh, this is what is exacerbating all of these societal issues that I've been reporting on. Where, I mean, literally, like for the last 10 years, every year it was a recycling of the same stories. 
homelessness ballooning. This guy pours $500 million on it. Uh, housing is too expensive. Oh, this regular, nothing is working. The problems are just getting bigger. And it's because government is just like handing out free checks, raising the debt ceiling. And the money is going to the people who don't really need it. And it's crushing the people like my family, the middle class, the lower class, the savers, the pension fund holders. Like it's so messed up and nobody gets it. And it's even worse now. Like it's an accelerating problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. $30 trillion of debt. $30 trillion of debt. Can't even get my head around that. I know it's insane. And and people don't even have a concept of like that it has any meaning anymore. Like I started teaching at USC and I, t- I tried to get my students to like maybe do a story on the debt ceiling being raised. And because it's been raised and there's been no consequence, like what does it even, what does it matter to the average person that doesn't understand the system? It's like, well, they voted 20 other times to raise it. So like, why not again? There's no consequence, but they don't realize it's what's like pulling us apart into not only rich and really rich and really poor, but it's also, I think, pulling us in these like polarized political zones too, because we have to have someone to blame, right? So we start blaming each other, blaming these people, those people, when the problem is sitting below us and it's the quicksand that is the fiat system. I think they should remove ceiling from it. (laughs) Yeah. Because there clearly is no ceiling. There is no ceiling. There is no ceiling to this. So, okay, but you make the decision, you're like, fuck it, I'm done. I'm going to quit. I'm going to go full time. I'm going to be a podcaster. Well, yeah. I mean, so I had a podcast um, before. I I literally thought this was going to be a one-off. I had a podcast called Career Stories, which is why it's called Coin Stories. And I just, I I always loved people's backstories. Like I always loved biographies, autobiographies, especially if it was like a rags to riches. It was inspiring to me, right? Like I love hearing how people overcame obstacles to achieve success and like what, you know, what they had to persevere through. And so I had this podcast where I was interviewing like people from all backgrounds and different industries, politics, media, journalism. Um, Mooch was actually on it way back when. The Mooch. The Mooch. And uh, pre-Trump Mooch. It was post-Trump. Post-Trump. But but before they had like the massive feud, I think. Well, I thought it only lasted about a week. Well, he was eleven days in the White House. Yeah, Yeah. 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 I love how he talks about Trump. Yeah, yeah, he's very, he changed his tune <laughs> the for big, sure. The big orange moron. Um, but yeah, so I, I decided because I was talking to that mentor, I, I we always went back and forth on Bitcoin and now money and I started to invest and, um, and he goes, why are you interviewing these people that like are in, you know, journalism or me, like, wh- why aren't you interviewing the Bitcoin people? And I Duh. go... Yeah, I go, that's a really interesting point. And so I started to reach out to people like you because I had started following you all. And I was curious. I was like, how did you guys come to the conclusion of Bitcoin? Where are you from? Why do you believe in this? What's your background that maybe made you predisposed to these sort of principles? And uh, and so I started to reach out and I decided to put together like a season. I was like, oh, I'll just get the 12 biggest people and I'll, I'll call it coin stories for a season and, and then I'll be done. Who did you have first? You, you were my first episode. <laughs> I know, I knew you were my that. first interview and my first episode. I knew that, I yeah. knew that. That's probably because I'm, I'm the first who replied. Everyone else is like, I'm too fucking busy. No, well, your podcast was like a really big entry point for me, you know, after, because I started to consume everything. I became obsessed. So I worked my job, but then I would wake up at six o'clock in the morning to watch YouTube videos, listen to your podcast, listen to Pomp, you know, listen to stuff Fuck about- that guy. Yeah. So I just, I just was like hungry for all the information I could. And then, and then I wanted to talk to you guys. So, and you did it. 
I did it. How many episodes now? 50. 50, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Dylan LeClaire was my 50th. How good is Dylan? Dylan was amazing. How fucking smart are these I kids? Know, I, I know, I cannot I believe can't it. handle it. I feel like a dumbass talking to somebody half my age. I, I love, I love this whole space. Like I, as soon as you meet someone who's in Bitcoin, it's you automatically check off all the, like you're like, yeah, you're cool. Cause you probably believe pretty much all the same things. There's a, there's a big range of personalities, mm-hmm. really big personalities and standout personalities, but so diverse. Yeah. It's a, it's just like a fascinating space to be part of. Mm-hmm. So you did 50, you've done 50 episodes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Can you do, have you had any repeats? Yes, I've had Peter on again. I've had Saifedean on again. Peter Schiff. Peter Schiff. You saw it. You saw it. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I I retired Schiff from the background in terms Uh, of the photo. I was like, the joke's done. And then Danny brought the the block clock. I love Peter. Can we get him up there? It's so funny because Peter, I read his books and he knows his stuff. When it comes to the monetary system, like... He, he is a Bitcoiner, yeah. except that he's like the villain of Bitcoin. And I don't know. I just, but I love him. I think he's great. I think he's great. Uh, how do you tell somebody's story twice or you, you just don't? You, have you evolved beyond that? Yeah, no, no, no. So I'll like, and I've also had Preston Pish and Willie Wu on again, because I'll have interviews that are more, um, you know, headline driven or more what's happening in the market now. Because I want to, I want to branch out. Obviously, yeah. at some point you run out of coin stories. So uh, there's still a lot of people in the space. Like, I mean... If if I could get Elon Musk or some <laughs> Jack Dorsey or we, people, we all want that them. would be great. Uh, but no, I, I'm trying to br- branch out and have more conversations. Peter, I had on because I wanted to go over some points he made in his book about fixing the financial system. Safety, and I talked to him about his new book. So yeah, I'm just trying to get out there. But it's funny because yeah, I do remember that shift of just deciding, okay, I'm going to leave my job, which was at this point like I'm doing okay. I like my title. I like my boss. I, I was in a great news job that I was really happy with doing stories that I, that fulfilled me. Being paid. Uh-huh. Being paid. <laughs> being paid. I had, I had my, I had a car. I had my gas paid for. I had, I mean, it was a good gig and I decided to just jump off the cliff because I felt like there's more that I can do and more lives that I can touch in a positive way. And I can really be myself. Like I can really share the fact that I'm not neutral on Bitcoin. I believe that this could change the future and allow a lot of people to achieve the American dream and achieve wealth for their family. So I'm too passionate about it to be, you know, neutral and stand on the sidelines. You got to take some risks sometimes. Yeah, you have to. You got to put yourself out there. The reason I got my hands tattooed is so I could never get a normal job again. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So I always had tattoos, but always hidden. And then (laughs) once I went into Bitcoin... I got my hands done. Well, you can get a job anywhere with tattoos. Mm, this is not in your hands, 2022. Mm, certain jobs you can't get. Okay. There's certain, certain people look at you in different ways. Mm. But uh, okay, you've done 50 episodes. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this is the gig now. Mm-hmm. So what's going to happen for the next 50 episodes? Where's this going? Uh, so I'm just going to keep going and trying to interview as many people as possible. There's still like a huge wish list of people that I have. And I'm doing more videos and partnering with awesome companies to try to just get the message out there more and, and use my skill. Like I'm basically trying to channel the journalism communication skills to simplify the message of Bitcoin. Because I think that the rabbit hole is very big and very difficult to navigate, especially if you have a full-time job and you just don't understand it and you don't even know why you need to understand it. And so I think that there needs to be, um, there need to be people in 
this space who are focused on the content and the education aspect that just go, okay, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to read or look at. Here's what you need to understand from the history of the system. And like, this is why you should take a look at Bitcoin and not have a, you know, 0% allocation at this point. So I'm just trying to do that in any way possible. Like when they ask me to go on TV, I go on TV. When someone says, Hey, fly out and do a presentation. I fly out and do a presentation. I do whatever it you takes. Hustle. I'm hustling. I'm, I'm an immigrant. I hustle all the time. You, I'm still, we all hustle. I'm still hustling. Yeah. You got to keep hustling. Yeah. Uh, okay. Who's on the wish list? Who's the top three? Um, Kathy Wood. Yeah. I would love to Agreed. talk. Yeah. I would love to talk to her. Uh, Joe Rogan actually, you know, cause I've seen him talk a couple times about Bitcoin on the show and I know he's accepted payment, but I mean, for so many reasons, I would just love to love to sit down with him. And uh, Jack Dorsey's really high on my, my list. A bunch of Jacks are. Jack Maulers is on my list. You've not done Jack Maulers yet? No, I've tried to reach him. Um, I can't reach him. I've tried. I mean, there's so many people that are obviously naive. Bukele, I would love to get. Um, there's so many people still on the list. So I, I can help you with Jack. Oh, we're seeing him you. this week. We're, I'm interviewing him this week. Oh, that's awesome. M if you want to come over and introduce you, we can make that happen. I would love that. Let's do that. Okay. Make that. I think Jack would love to come on the show. And actually, he's got a great story. I know. I would love to, I would love to hear yeah, it. Yeah, he's so fascinating. And he's such a great interview. Um, and Chicago. Hometown. Chicago. <laughs> uh, Bukele is an interesting interview. Mm -hmm. You probably have to, you might have to travel for that. Well, we, we had an exchange on I, Twitter. I, I don't know if you saw it, but to do it fries. wasn't a no. It wasn't a no. You can <laughs> have some fries. <laughs> it wasn't a no. I think I might get him. Think I think you, I might get him. I think him. you might get him. You should get him. He needs to talk to more people. We'll see. Um, okay. So just going back a touch, you, you, mm -hmm. ta you take the leap. You're, mm -hmm. in, you're into, into Bitcoin now. Any fears? No, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think, I, I have to be honest with you, I think when you have the type of background that I do, you're always scared that like you could lose everything because uh -huh. I've literally experienced that. Yep. And for so much of my childhood, I just, we were financially unstable. So I think I always have this worry that the, the money won't be there. <laughs> and I feel better with Bitcoin for sure. Um, but I just feel like I have to keep going. Like, and, and I'm, I'm on my own and I don't, you know, my parents, like I'm supporting them as opposed to them supporting me. So it's just, I just, I probably overload myself a little bit with too much, with too many things that I say yes to, because I'm like, well, this is an opportunity to save more and help my family. This is an opportunity to save more and help my future family. This is an opportunity to, you know, whatever. So, um, yeah, financial independence. It's like, you know, people think that just because we're doing this or I'm on Fox business talking about Bitcoin, that I'm a millionaire. I wish, I wish. And like, I hope someday that Bitcoin allows me to feel totally secure, but I'm not there. I'm not there. And like, my dream is to retire my parents. And that's something I haven't been able to achieve yet. Because being a news reporter, you're not making great money. Not Certainly not enough in this world with how expensive things are to take care of your family in that way. So that's my dream. Like, I want to spread the message of Bitcoin and be able to retire my parents. You'll get there. Thank you. I think so. I think the thing is with podcasting, you just have to be really patient. Mm -hmm. You know, it just trickles up, trickles up, trickles up. Yeah. Um, but when we had that chat the other day, we were texting mm -hmm. each other and you told me your numbers, you're exactly the same trajectory as mine. Okay. It's just, you got to keep, you got to keep hustling. You got to keep doing it. You got to be patient. Yeah. And I think the thing with podcasting, a lot of, a lot of people give up mm -hmm. and they give up because like they've been doing it for six or like months or eight months. Yeah. It's just not got where they want it to, but, mm -hmm. but it's just about keeping going. The, the, the work is quality. Thank you don't you. struggle to get guests. Mm -hmm. You're a great interviewer. Thank so you. I, I think you'll be fine. 
I, I want to know a little bit more about like where you are in the Bitcoin spectrum. Mm-hmm. So you're a, you're not a shitcoiner. No. You remember our first interactions on Twitter <sighs> where you were like, who's this girl? Who is she? Because I said something about shitcoins, right? I can't remember. You my d- memory's you terrible. You said this on my podcast that you were, because you were like, who is this girl? But we were, we had some interactions on, on Twitter and I, I called someone out for being a shit coiner or something and you were like, oh. oh yeah. You were, you were like coming in, like flying in, like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking haymakers of people. Yeah. Well, yeah. I remember I re- now. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm losing out on a lot of financial opportunity right now. My DMs are full of people that want me to promote shitcoin projects and metaverse and NFT things. So you can see how much I believe in Bitcoin by turning that stuff down. Cause I could really use that money. <laughs> I, 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 I know the feeling I've, I've turned down a lot of shitcoin money. Yeah. You, you, you're playing the long game, low time I, preference. Exactly. exactly. I really believe that this will pay off in the long run. I don't want to lead the sheep to the slaughterhouse. But where are you on like the spectrum with regards to politics? Because you obviously mm. fully recognize that the problem is government. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether you vote in mm-hmm. a Republican government or Mm-mm. a Democrat government. The same shit happens. It's the same in the UK. It doesn't matter whether it's Labour or Conservative. Yeah. There's like some slight changes, but the debt goes up. Yep. And there are a lot of, you know, this is right on point now. Yesterday. Uh, Two days ago, we were discussing with VJ talking about this exact point mm-hmm. and discussing uh, the ideas of like what's going to happen to governance, what's going to happen to politics. Mm-hmm. You know, VJ's firmly of the belief that we're going to move to a post-democracy world of city-states, and I, I'm not there, but I know another a lot, a lot of people are. And a lot of Bitcoiners, are anarchists, or libertarian. Mm-hmm. Where do you fit on that whole? Spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would consider myself more of a libertarian. I'm, I, I think, online, I'm, de- or voting wise, I'm designated as independent. I just, I've become really jaded with politics because of my career. Because you're right, um, you know, not just with with growing up and seeing whether it was a red person or what or blue person in the White House, my parents' problems got worse every year. So, um, so I don't think it's like necessarily red versus blue. And I will say again, as a reporter, I covered all these campaigns and and different uh, elected officials. And it was all the same. Like they come in, maybe they have great intentions, but like the system corrupts, I think from within. And it's so rooted in like who gets money, how, and these packs and all that. And um, I just think that people maybe get lost in that. I don't know. Or, or maybe like natural greed just starts to bubble up and you start to want to, you know, go towards the, the, the shiny area where people are promising you big checks to reelect you. And I just am really sad about the whole system because I think that as fiat and as the money printing exacerbates wealth inequality, I think it puts a societal pressure on everyone where everyone feels this like anxiety, they can't make it. And all of a sudden little things like you start to separate yourselves into little groups and you start to say, well, you're that team and I'm this team. And now we've gotten to the point where we can't see eye to eye on anything. And it's like our country was founded on freedom. Our country was founded on small government. Our country was founded on all these things that all of a sudden, like, well, if you feel that way, you're on this side. If you feel this way about this, you're on this side. And people are trying to politicize Bitcoin, which I hate because it's like, it's apolitical. It's, it's software. It's software. It's math. What do you what do you mean? It's just it's it's not political. You're trying to make it political. Well, it does feel slightly more Republican because of uh, being a slightly more conservative approach to economics. 
Them. Yep. But, but but also the financial accessibility and sort of this this um, mission to have a more egalitarian society is certainly more progressive, right? And no, no, of course. But I just don't think that message has got out for sure. because most of the message about Bitcoin is uh, kind of mm-hmm. economic conservatism, sure. and I think that's one of the difficulties. I also think that one of the interesting things is traveling back and forth from the UK to the US. This divide, this left right divide, this political divide seems way, way worse here than in the UK. Yeah. And a perfect example would be, we've all lived through this pandemic for the last two years, coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's not the same in the UK. In the UK, there isn't, oh, I'm conservative, therefore yeah. I'm not vaccinated. Oh, I'm Labour, right. I am vaccinated. You know, there's certain issues where people... It, it, but in the US, it feels like every issue, it gets put into one of the pools. Absolutely. And I don't know why this is happening. I don't know if this is a media problem or if this is just a historical uh, problem of division that's got worse and worse because it's a two-party system. Mm-hmm. So there isn't that escape valve for people mm-hmm. who feel stuck. We have escape valves in the UK. If, you, if, you, if you're not conservative, not Labour, you can become a Lib Dem or you can vote mm-hmm. Green. We've got a multi-party system. I don't know if it's that. I don't know what it is, but I come here and I'm like, why is everyone so fucking divided? Yeah. Well, I think certainly media, social media exacerbates it and they they clickbait and they capitalize on it. But I, st- I still think like at the core is just because our, our system is now so broken and it's like it's starting to create these divides because now it's you're starting to resent people for different things. And at the core of it, I think, is money. I think when you connect the dots, it's just the fact that it's so much harder to make it so much people are more dependent on government handouts or stimulus or assistance. And um, I think we've lost the sense of what what capitalism actually is. People confuse the two. We have crony capitalism because of the government intervention and people don't really understand that. So they blame the wrong people, right? We see it with Senator Warren saying, oh, it's the greedy meat manufacturers, the greedy corporations, Elon Musk. Well, meanwhile, we've got politicians day trading and making a bunch of money and making money on speeches and all like, they're, they're innocent. They're not the problem at all. Like, I, I just, I think it's hypocrisy for me has always been one of the, one of the evils that I want to weed out in journalism, because if you make the rules, you should have to play by them too. And I think that's, what's really frustrated me in the pandemic is, you know, just the other day we had governor Newsom and our LA city mayor, no masks posing with celebrities at the LA Rams game, but everyone is supposed to wear masks and there's all these rules and your kids can't go to school without masks. Well, like, why is it a different set of rules for you than everybody else? Governor Newsom dining at the, you know, restaurant up north when every restaurant is closed. I one of my biggest stories before I left my news job was a hypocrisy story and it just I mean when you p- touch that button because of how like inflamed everybody is right now, those stories go so viral. I reported on a the president of LA City Council who after all the civil unrest that happened in May of 2020, mm-hmm. she uh, proposed defunding the LA police by 150, 200 million dollars and came out saying we don't need them and da da da, this whole system's broken. Idiotic. Meanwhile, I caught her and filmed her having two police, not just one, two police officers paid for by taxpayers round the clock outside of her house, round the clock. And the second that I, like I interviewed them and they're like, yeah, what the heck? She's defunding us. And we have to sit outside her house and guard her house. And I, the second I called, Hey, can you tell me why there are two police officers round the clock for the last five months outside of your house? All all of a sudden they're sent away and she won't answer my questions, but she sends them away because she got caught. Of course not. What is that? What is that? 
This isn't a red or blue issue. It's like, why are you a hypocrite? Why are you a hypocrite? Because some people are full of shit. It's ridiculous. Some people focus on theater. It's ridiculous. They focus on um, doubling down on certain issues. and not like. There's a real issue with people going, ah, do you know, I fucked up, I was wrong. That would be nice if more people did that. Whereas people don't realize is from honesty comes authenticity, mm-hmm. which is the reason why Joe Rogan is so loved. Do mm-hmm. I think do I think there are things that are said on the Joe Rogan show that are wrong? Absolutely. But do I believe he's trying to pursue the truth and he's an honest person? Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. why you trust him more than you trust MSNBC or Fox News. And I feel like I do feel like there needs to be a revolution in journalism and mm-hmm. media. That's a massive problem at the moment. And you probably recognize that more than anybody as somebody who's worked in it. I mean, you've talked about it. Yeah, I will say that um I, I always felt not in my last job, actually, I felt good in my last job, but, um, cause it was more driven by like human, human interest and storytelling and investigative. But in previous jobs that I had in different newsrooms, I felt like I couldn't even be myself in the newsroom because the stories and the narrative and the bias was in one direction. And in my core, I felt like we're missing the other half of the story and I can't speak up because if I speak up, I'm going to be looked at as this, you know, crazy person on the other side, even if you're just trying to get more middle. And that's hard. And I know that there's, I know there's other journalists who felt that way because we would find each other in the newsroom and and it would be anchors and reporters that are like, yeah, uh, we feel differently. We voted differently, but we can't say it because we're all of a sudden going to be ostracized and marginalized as people who are against the narrative, the, the, the agreed upon view. And that's crazy to me. Again, like that's not America. And you know, White House coming out saying they want to censor Joe Rogan's music or telling Spotify to, how is this American? But it, it, Words it are that scary. Like he's interviewing people and asking questions. Why is that so scary? I don't, I, well, I just well, think it's, it's actually, sad. It's actually an insult to everybody else that they can't, they can't decipher this information themselves. Yeah. We're all trying to find answers to some very complicated questions out there, whether it's the pandemic or money, global warming. There's so many complicated issues sure. out there. And you, you need the ability to go out there and go through and sift through the information, whether sure. it's an article, whether it's a research piece, whether it's a podcast. But once they start taking pieces away from you, how do you know you get to the truth? Mm-hmm. You're just getting to their version of the truth. And usually truth isn't binary. No. No, and I just think it's sad that that um, we're basically allowing some media outlets to, like I said before, become a mouthpiece for the government without any questions of where, I mean, the, the government and politicians, they want to remain in power, right? I mean, there's an incentive system that's very clear. And I don't understand how journalism as this like extra branch that's supposed to be the watchdog, not the lapdog, the watchdog is just saying like, yeah, whatever the White House says here, we're, we're just going to regurgitate it. And if you don't go by what the government says, then like you're the problem. It's because of the money. And this is, this harps back to like my parents, this is not the country that they thought that they were moving to. They saw that type of government and they did not want it. They wanted to leave it. So it's interesting to see them sort of see how, how America has changed over these last 20 years that we've been here because it's completely different. 
it's completely different. What does your mom say? She, she, she's worried. worried. Yeah. Yeah. She's worried for, for the future. She's thought about going back to Poland because now Poland has changed so much and become more capitalistic and, and found a sense of nationalism and found sort of an identity now. And, um, she, she feels like the life would actually be better there in some ways than here where again, like how do people there, it's very difficult to retire today. If you didn't have a cushy job with a pension, like how are you going to afford retirement? Well, even the pensioners are getting fucked. They're going to be the ones paying for this financial problem they're in now. I actually want to mention this too, because a lot of people don't appreciate some of the things like unless they're in that boat and in that situation. So my parents worked a significant portion of their adult lives in Poland, right? So I mentioned my mom was 38 and my dad 41 when we came here. So in the same way that we have sort of social security, a similar system exists in Poland. Well, (laughs) Uncle Sam wants you to report that money from another country if you're receiving retirement benefits, guess what rate they tax it at? No idea. 75%. You are fucking kidding me. So my dad collects 25 cents on the dollar for money he earned just because it's coming from another country. Like our system is so broken and messed up. And it's like, this is what gets me mad. So like you see, you joke, you know, I come on with like a blaze of glory when I go on TV. Yeah, because the system's broken and I want to fix it because people don't deserve to live like this. They deserve to just be able to make money and keep it without losing value. Well, it's a it's a vulture tax system the U.S. has. I, I'm always amazed by this uh, this tax rule whereby if you move to another country and you earn money in another country, mm-hmm. you're still taxed by the U.S. government. Yeah. If you move to the U.K. or move to Poland, you got a job, Natalie, it, you will be taxed by the U.S. government. It blows my. I think. I think somebody told me that only like two countries do it. It's like the U.S. and something weird like Eritrea. Yeah, uh, I'd have to. We'd have to fact check that. But, but it blows my mind how, v- v- like how poisonous this tax system here is in the U.S. And where's the money going? Like, where does it all go? It's not helping people with mental health issues in no. Santa Monica who who are left roaming the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going towards the police Mm-mm. in San Francisco, which Lauren telling us about was a, is an absolute shit show. You can't mm-hmm. leave a car on the street. No, it's, it's not going to help the homeless. Where's, where where does the money go? It goes in their pockets. Do you know how much the salaries are of people that work in local government here? Like I've a local heard. LA County supervisor or... I, I reported on it, a local LA County supervisor. Her salary was like 300000 She ended up hiring a former girlfriend of hers who became like an assistant or deputy, whatever, and 250 k a year. It's like, this system is so messed up. It's so fucking broken. And then they're guaranteed that salary pretty much for life once they retire. And it's just, oh, that's where the money's going. Oh, good. No wonder, you know, basically the highest paying jobs are in local government, which is re- completely incompetent on yeah. some levels. That's something we do have in common between the UK and yeah. the US is completely incompetent government. And also, uh, they always get paid and they always grow. Yeah. They always get paid yep. during the pandemic as... Uh, of course, people are put in lockdown and of cafes course. and restaurants and nail salons all were closing because they couldn't afford to survive. Every single person in local government and your federal government yeah. kept their jobs and got paid. Yeah, which one is of my, bullshit. One of my friends reported on one of the supervisors here, like again coming out on stage saying it's dangerous to eat. We got to close down all the restaurants that night. She's out at a restaurant with Adam, like just eating and enjoying life, and it's just crazy. And if you ever do want to talk about homelessness, I have so many opinions on it because I ended up doing um, a story where I was embedded on Skid Row and some of our our, our worst homeless areas. I mean, it's there's, there's very few things that 
that bother me more than homelessness. Um, the the one charity I've constantly donated to in the UK is Shelter. Um, uh, oh, I will always, I mean, we did this morning, we had a guy outside Starbucks, me and Danny, we tried to buy him breakfast, he, he wouldn't take it, but we got him an orange juice like that. It's, it just pains me that people are trapped to live on the street. And okay, look, Mm-hmm. If if I was going to want to be homeless anywhere, I'd want it to be in Venice or Malibu because at least you've got the sunshine. But in London, mm-hmm. you know, in the winter, it's cold as fuck and mm-hmm. people are laying on in boxes and then they're spending the days begging. And I don't know the answer, but it, it's, it, it upsets me. So tell me, I'd, I'd love to know. Yeah, I mean, we, we'd we really have to get into it and I'm sure we don't have time, but it was one of the most eye-opening experiences because I did ride-alongs um, with the paramedics who respond to the area that has the highest homeless concentration in the country. And it's actually, it's the busiest fire station in the country, not because there's so many fires, but because every day they're constantly just responding to the homeless. And um, Here in LA? Yeah, here in LA, we have a huge, huge problem. So I was embedded with station nine, which again, busiest fire station in the country, but they're not responding to fires. It's all homeless emergencies, mostly related to their health. And most of their calls are related to overdoses. And so this is um, what I think is irresponsible of the government here, especially the local government, is that they're not recognizing the drug problem that exists in this community. And because there's really no no consequence and there's no there's no outlet in which basically like the person, okay, now you've responded to the person three times. Now now there's a place where they, they have to go to get some help. The ACLU, I believe, is the one that lobbied to basically say, well, it's it's a person's human right to say no. Explain, Even, explain who the ACLU are. Uh, I, I, the I American know. Civil Liberties Union. Yeah. They're also, I think, behind um, Prop 47, which basically decriminalized everything, let a bunch of people out, and we have surges in crime ever since that passed in 2014. Prop 47 in California has been awful for just societal issues. Um, and And okay, so the ACLU, my understanding is that they basically lobbied and said, you can't force someone into into treatment, essentially. You can't force someone to do something that they don't want to do, even if they don't have the mental capacity to make that decision. So what does that mean? There are a lot of people who are homeless, especially in downtown Los Angeles, who are um, severely addicted to drugs or mentally ill or a combination of the two. Now... The paramedics respond to these people all day, every day. So now let's say you're responding to someone who literally is not with it, whether they're on a, on a meth trip or whether they have a severe, maybe a schizophrenic episode, they can't, they can't take care of themselves. They mm-hmm. can't answer the question of, can I take you to rehab? Can I please take you to this facility where you will get sober and you will get food and you will, um, you'll rest and we'll give you a bed and we'll help you with whatever? They can't make that call, right? Because they're not, they're not there. However, because of this law and because of how the ACLU lobbied where we've swung the pendulum all the way to one side, the second that you ask them and they say no, they have to be hands off because otherwise literally the department could get sued for taking them somewhere against their will. They, so a person who is not able to actually functionally say yes or no, take me to a sobering center or whatnot, the second that they say no or refuse they have to let them go. So what happens is it's like a revolving, it's a circle where they respond to someone who's overdosing. They pop them with Narcan, which wakes them up. Literally, I saw zombies wake up. Like this person is dead. Narcan sparks the heart. They're breathing again. They get taken to the emergency room. Every test is done. They wake up. The people at the hospital say, hey, there's a facility. Can we take you to it? There's a sobering center. There's a facility where you could get rest. There's a rehab center. The person says, nope, goes back on the street, overdoses again. And it's like this. 
and they get these, um, they have phones because the government gives them phones and they also have um, like these little debit cards essentially. They get filled up twice a month and guess how many, guess when the overdoses are? When are the overdoses? I think I know when the overdoses are. Okay. When the cars get refilled. So they have to, they have to actually staff the, the station more uh, on the days that the cars get refilled because they go right out, they get drugs on the street and they get, they overdose. Why don't they take cards away from the people who are overdosing? Well, that would that, that would be against would be their civil logic. human rights. Though. The ACLU seem to me to be a very poisonous, uh, stupid organization who are trying to uh, be progressive to the point of stupidity and not uh, not creating any consequences in society. Do you know who Michael Schellenberger is? Yes. Yes, have you yes, I've inter- yes. You've interviewed him. I've talked to him on Twitter because I've done stories on the homeless and he he has gone out on like the boardwalk and saw the tent cities and the yep. drug city that was here in Venice. Yeah. Have you read his book? I haven't read his book, no. Okay, so he's actually, he's got two, I don't know if it's he's got more than two books. There's two books I know of. I, I disagree with his, um, he's put a book on global warming and I've researched that and I disagree with him. I think he's wrong there, but his book, San Francisco, talking about the issues in San mm-hmm. Francisco and talking about the drugs problems, uh, I think he's on point. And he did a fascinating interview with Joe Rogan oh. talking about these issues yeah. and talking about how he thinks these issues can be solved. Yeah. The issues of crime, homelessness, and drugs. And he basically comes to the point that there needs to be consequences. There's no consequences, There's exactly. No consequences. And so the. But the, there are. Natalie, there yeah. are consequences to everybody else. Exactly. There's consequences to the fire department, which has to deal with these people. There's exactly. consequences to the hospital that has to pay for this. There's consequences to society. Exactly. There's consequences to San Francisco where people c- cannot park their cars on the street or they're just migrating out of the city. Exactly. So there are consequences for everybody else. Exactly. There's a really good movie. I think if you're interested in this topic, it's called Seattle is Dying and it focuses exactly on this problem, which exists in all these major urban cities. But um, a lot of the the firefighters and, and cops that I interviewed, they really, really love the message in it because again, it's about how this really is. A lot of it's a drug and mental health problem that you have to address. And there has to be an avenue where at some point the person is not able to make this decision and you have to place them somewhere. So um, I'm not saying jail is the right place because that's where in the past some people were taken to jail, but we don't have mental health institutions, right? Because all of that got defunded and they were seen as the whole, like uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, they were all seen as just the, the horrible institutions where everybody is, is not taken care of. Well, maybe we need to change that and, and divert some more, some more uh, capital to recreating that system because someone who's how are you going to get out of that system? And what's the best case scenario? You're going to stop doing drugs to what, become a barista at Starbucks? Like there's no consequences for living on the street and going to the bathroom on the street and doing the drugs you want because you're getting free money from the government. What will pull you out? Like how? I mean, and so in Seattle is dying. They have this system where they, they analyze the problem in Seattle. They talked to a bunch of people that respond to the issue. They saw how big of a drug problem it was. Then they flew to a place in Rhode Island where it was kind of a system of like strikes where eventually you basically you go to jail or you go to this facility where you have to get help and they medicate you and they basically get you kind of um, operating functionally again. And these people that they interviewed, they were like, if, if, the, if someone hadn't forced me to just get help or to get on this medicine, I would have never done it. I'd still be on the street right now in that tent. And so, but we're not allowed to do that because that's against, you know, civil rights. It's human liberty. But, but yeah, we don't have the liberty to like not wear a mask or whatever. <laughs> like, 
It's so messed up. Well, there's a show. This you're going to have added to the the show we're going to be making soon. Um, a topic that came out of my conversation with VJ Boy Party. I, I, I said one of the things that worries me about absolute uh, liberty is the net effect. What are the what is the net effect? If you don't have a police force, mm-hmm. uh, but you have private security forces, does that mean some people can't afford security? Does that mean you have rich and poor zones? Uh, what is the yeah. net effect of absolute liberty? What does it mean for civil rights? What does it mean for uh, human rights? What does it mean for equality of opportunity? What does it mean for women's rights? What does it mean for minority rights? Like mm-hmm. uh, These are all things that worry me. And so we've decided we're going to make a show, and it might end up being a couple of shows, talking about and discussing you know, absolute liberty. What are the risks? What comes out of it? Mm-hmm. And for me, I think... I don't want to burn down the system just because at the moment the system's broken. I want to look at ways to reinforce the system and make mm-hmm. it better because I believe that I believe that a, a well-coordinated and organized society can, can, can help people and it can yes. make the world a better place. So that idea of uh, absolute liberty for people who are shitting on the street and taking drugs and taking yeah. resources away from taxpayers, to me, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. No. doesn't make and I think to I think to most people it doesn't make any sense and I would be questioning the ACLU and saying well are you fucking stupid well and also it's like you're I know there's people with good intentions right it's like because you don't want to hurt you don't want to be the mean person that's taking the homeless person and forcing them to do something well is it nice to allow them to continue to overdose every single day on the street and live a life of just complete devastation where they don't have a bathroom they're not clean they have no access to anything except basically drugs and sitting around to do nothing like that's not kind that's not helping the fellow man I mean it's just it's backwards and again I mean when you start to boil it down, I don't think we would have this ballooning problem if there was more access to opportunity, economic opportunity, which ultimately goes back to our fiat system that I think affects everything from, you know, from these types of issues to family life, you know, family dating, like you and I have texted back and forth a little bit, like it's just transformed everything. And I really hope that by ushering in this option of returning to sound money, we can change some of those problems. It won't, it'll take a while, but I I really have high hopes. You're on the mission. Yeah. Well, Natalie, you know, I adore you. You're a really good friend of mine and uh, I would do anything to help you on on your mission. Um, Anyone listening, check out Natalie's show. It's fucking brilliant and she's the best. Thank Um, you. And congratulations recently. Like I said, you've been crushing it. Thank you. Lots of people are recognizing you've been crushing it and I just wish the best for you and anything I can do to help. You have my number. You you can reach out to me anytime. Thank you. Well, I look up to you. Your show is amazing. I'm incredibly, congratulations on your team, on your big production. Uh, it means a lot and this feels very full circle since you're my first guest oh thank you okay well listen all the best tell people where to find your show Uh, Coin Stories is on YouTube Spotify Apple Podcasts all the podcasting platforms and I'm very active on Twitter at Nat Brunel All right. awesome good luck take care and I will uh, well I can see you on Saturday see you Saturday see you Saturday All right. Thanks for listening to what Bitcoin did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.